Um, we have two passages. The first one from the Old Testament, right at the beginning, Genesis 2. And then the second reading will be from the New Testament, Mark chapter 1. So first of all, Genesis 2, verses 15 to 23. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Mark chapter 1, 14 to 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me introduce Richard to you. Richard Cook works for the Diocese of Coventry. He is the DDO, which I'll leave him to explain because I can never get the <laughs> words around the right way. The um, DDO means the Diocesan Director of Ordinands. Um, Ordinands are people who are getting ready for ordination, such as Ruth. Um, trying to direct them is not always easy. Uh, but we do our best. Um, I've actually got a slightly wider role than that, so my role is to look after people who are in training for ordination and so on, uh, supervise the selection of them and all that, but also to have a watching brief over all the training activity we do across the diocese as well. So it's, uh, it's a big job, but it's a very enjoyable one and uh, absolutely right for me as you'll later on here, I think. And he's very good at it, I have to say. 
been very, very supportive. And we discovered as well that we've got a, another link, because you come mm. from Kent and I come from Kent, and it turns out, because you started work very young, obviously, that you used to work in office blocks that overlooked the playing fields where my school was, didn't That's you? That's right, yes. So, um, so, yeah, yes, I'm a little bit younger than Adrian, but a little bit older than you, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was, that was quite a link. So you're going to speak to us this morning on vocation. Can I pray with you before we... Please do. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for Richard. Thank you for his role in the diocese. Thank you for his wisdom and his help. And I pray now that you would speak through him, that you would keep him attentive to your voice. Thank you for what he's prepared. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Good. Well, lovely to be here with you this morning at St. Paul's. Um, alongside the work I do across the diocese, we live down in a village called Warmington, which is just inside Warwickshire, um, about five miles north of um, Banbury. And I'm associate minister in a group of six rural churches there. So my usual Sunday beat is with a much smaller congregation than this. Uh, so it's lovely to see all of you here. Um, but I very much enjoy doing that kind of stuff as well. Uh, it means, I was saying to somebody just earlier on, I get to do all the nice bits about being a vicar without having to do the difficult things um, because we've got a full-time vicar who covers all six churches and I kind of help out. A bit of country vicaring at weekends is what I tend to say to people. Um, but it also means when you're doing that kind of overall job, I always think it helps, certainly it does for me, also to have your feet on the ground um, and to be involved in all the joys and sorrows of parish life, although on a very much smaller scale than you get here. So that's me, lovely to be here today as I said, and Jonathan had asked me to come and talk about vocation, calling, and he said, and it's the weekend before Ruth's ordination, so that makes quite an appropriate thing to do. So that's what I'm going to do, and we're, we've gave, given this the title, Vocation, Vocation, Vocation. It might remind you of some television program or another. A few years ago when I was a vicar in Coventry, a group of us were, were drawn together and asked to think about telling our own story of calling to ordination. And I'd been ordained about 15 years at that point. And as I did it, a terrible truth dawned on me. I wasn't sure I ever really had been. Because when I thought about what was the call God had given me, I realized that that call actually was, and the way it had come to me at the time was, when I was about 19, to be a teacher of the Bible. That, that was the phrase that came to me. A little bit after that sense of call, um, I met some people who came from the South American Missionary Society, as it was then, now part of CMS, Church Mission Society, and uh, felt very taken by the work that they were doing in South America and had some sense that, that maybe that was the place that I should be serving. I should be a teacher of the Bible somewhere in South America. So I went and chatted to them, and they said, well, that sounds great, but in order to do that, you're doing a history degree at the moment, and you need, therefore, to get some theology. So why not see if you can be ordained in the Church of England, because they'll give you a theology degree as part of all that. So that's what I did, except in those days, you couldn't really go straight from university to theological college, so I then spent three years working in the centre of Coventry in a church there before going down to Bristol to do my training. And then, of course, once you come to the end of that, then you have to be a curate for three or four years somewhere. So I went to rugby to do that. By the time I got to the end of that, if you can add up all the maths, quite a lot of years had passed. And I'd got two children who were at school and all those sorts of things. And actually, 
it didn't feel as if God was calling me into that work in South America after all. I had felt that it was the case before, but it didn't really feel that it was the right thing now. And besides, when I tried to learn Spanish, I was absolutely rubbish at it as well. Sometimes that's God's way of telling you something, isn't it? And the net result was, although that sense of call to be a teacher of the Bible was still there, and the call to ordination is there in a sense as a secondary thing, actually what I've found over the years is that as my own sense of calling has grown and developed and changed, so I think really what I've found is that uh, much of vocation is really about staying faithful to Jesus' call to follow him through thick and thin, not so much what you do, uh, not, yes, not so much what you do as how you do it. That's the question, I think, that's come back to me. For me, the experience has very much been the kind of John Lennon thing of um, life is what happens while you're making other plans. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of feeling as well. And the challenge, therefore, is I don't think that I've been a failure or disobedient to God particularly. I don't think the church in South America is massively worse off without having me as a part of it. I think God has been able to paper over that crack pretty effectively one way or another. But it prompts the reflection for me that I think we often ask in vocation terms, Lord, what do you want me to do? When the real question is, who do you want me to be? Not so much, what do you want me to do? More, who do you want me to be? And I have found it quite helpful to see that worked out in what I think of as three zones of Christian life. Not watertight compartments, and I think we can overdo the divisions between them, but I've come to find them as helpful ways of answering that question, who do you want me to be, Lord? They are creation, kingdom, and church. Creation, kingdom, and church. And that's where the title for today comes from. Vocation, vocation, vocation. Each of those three zones. So the first one is creation. Let's have a think about that for a few minutes. From the beginning, God invites human beings to join in with him in what he's doing. In Genesis chapter 2, which we had our reading from earlier on, verses 8 and 15, we see how God sets the man, Adam, in the garden to till and keep it, or to work it and care for it, some translations say. God's created the garden, but it's the human's role to look after it, to cooperate and participate, to share in God's work. This is the key to fulfilling work, that we see that what we're doing is sharing in God's work of creation. I wonder what the worst job is that you've ever done. The worst one I ever heard about, I think, was shoveling elephant poo. Don't think about it for too long. This is a story that came from Chester Zoo. In the elephant house there, there were two blokes whose whole working lives were devoted to shifting elephant dung. If you can imagine the size of elephants, which is not too difficult, you can imagine the amount of dung that they produce in a day. Now, I said don't think about it too much, didn't I? That's what they were doing all day long, just shoveling elephant poo. And as you can imagine, it was pretty soul-destroying. Their morale and their motivation disappeared. They got very disaffected. And in fact, their disaffection, they became so grumpy that it was affecting the other staff as well. And so 
there was a, a group of management consultants called Work Structuring who worked from a Christian basis who were called in to do some consultancy in the zoo. And the zoo management said to them, you know, the real problem we've got is these guys in the elephant house just shoveling poo all day. What can we do about them? How can we motivate them and make them excited, make them employees of the month, make them the best dung shovelers in the kingdom? What can we do? And work structuring looked at it, and what they realized was that all that these guys were doing had no creative element in it at all. There was no transformation about it. They were just shoveling the rubbish. That was all they were doing. So they looked around the zoo and they realized that there were some rather lovely flower beds there. And they said, how would it be if in those flower beds you put some roses? And perhaps the guys who shovel the dung should also be in charge of the rose bushes. You can see the connection, because rose bushes apparently grow really well with elephant dung. I mean, there's a little gardening tip for you, should you be a rose grower. And that's what they did. They switched it around <laughs> so that the guys from the elephant house who cleared it had responsibility for growing the roses as well. What that did, of course, was to transform the dung into something beautiful for God. Now, for the employees, I don't think they were particularly aware that that had come from a kind of theological analysis, if you like, of the work that they were doing. But actually what happened was it changed the atmosphere in the whole zoo. And these guys became fulfilled and uh, happy to some extent, I think, in their work, so far as you ever can be, if that's your job. What the consultants had spotted, they'd had the insight that joining in with and participating in the creative work of God was what would make a difference. Transformation would change things from drudgery to creativity. So the first calling or vocation, I think, is this. And in Genesis, it includes the run of the garden, permission that, as God says, that you may eat freely of every tree except one. The calling is to share in God's making and growing of creation, a call that involves freedom to enjoy that creation and its fruits, but freedom within the limit that God sets in order to make it clear still that it is God's creation, his garden. From the undifferentiated human, a companion is created, making from the one human two, male and female, to share in that calling that God has given to share in this work is to be involved in the growing of creation, the remarkable and awe-inspiring fruitfulness of the world. So here's the first level of vocation, to cooperate and participate in God's creating and growing work. How do you get involved in that? Well, gardening's an obvious one, but there are plenty of other creation activities which are cooperating with God. Mark Green, in his book, Fruitfulness on the Front Line, which I think you've looked at here at St. Paul's, suggests that we look for things that create order, that generate provision, that bring joy, and that make beauty. That's the base level calling, to be human, to enjoy the life that God has given us, and to participate in it for good rather than destruction. Vocation at this level, creation level, I think, is about making the most of the gifts that we have, the intricate and marvelous way each of us is wired up slightly differently from the other. 
The educationalist Sir Ken Robinson talks about finding your element. There are plenty of TED Talks and things that he's done that are really worth looking at under that heading of finding your element. He's picking up that phrase, she's in her element, that we use sometimes when we see someone doing something that they're really good at or gifted at. This is about bringing out our humanity and becoming fully alive. Work can play its part in this, work that's fulfilling and creative that makes a difference, but perhaps a way of looking at this takes us back to the elephant house. What are the ways your work could be creative and life-giving by participating more obviously and satisfyingly in God's making and growing creation activity? Doing that is part of responding to God's call in creation. And notice that this kind of creation, this kind of calling, doesn't usually happen with bright lights on the road to Damascus. Elements of what we're called by God to be and to do stem from decisions we've made in response to God's call at other times in our lives. I'm absolutely convinced, for example, that I'm called to be a good grandfather to my 11-week-old grandson, Dylan, who came to stay with us for the first time on Friday. He's a delight. But in a sense, my vocation as his grandfather is an indirect one. I had little to do with becoming a grandfather. It just happened to me. That's how it works. That's partly what I mean by saying that God's call to us is often to be someone rather than to do something. In any particular set of life circumstances, the call is first to be faithful to God and then to act accordingly. It's not only about that, though. It's also about being prepared and able to articulate the vision and purpose that you have in your life, your sense of calling to be human to others. But, of course, not all work or life is fulfilling and creative. Being human in its fullest sense brings problems with it. In the garden, the man and woman go beyond the limits, the boundaries that God has set. Their sin is fundamentally pride a desire to be like God, as it says in Genesis 3, verse 5, to take control. So God seeks to redeem and renew the creation he's made. And he does that by bringing his kingdom in Jesus through the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that takes us into the second of our three zones of calling, kingdom. There is a sense in which if the creation is what God has done in the past, the kingdom is what God is doing in the future and comes towards us in that kind of way. You can therefore see that actually what we get is creation from behind us and as it were kingdom in front of us. And what God invites us to do is to get on board with what he's doing, with the kingdom that he's bringing. I've heard and we see that in Mark chapter 1. I've heard a couple of definitions that I rather like about the kingdom. God's kingdom is creation healed, is one of them. Another one, what the world would be like if God were in charge. It's about imagination and difficult to grasp, but we have glimpses of it, moments when we see, feel, and perhaps hear what that world might be like. And it's summed up for me, I think, in a poem by R.S. Thomas, called The Kingdom, Welsh priest and poet, which I hope will come up on the screen so that you're able to, uh, to see the words as well as just hear them. Here's how he describes God's kingdom. It's a long way off, but inside it there are quite different things going on. Festivals 
at which the poor man is king and the consumptive is healed. Mirrors in which the blind look at themselves and love looks at them back. And industry is for mending the bent bones and the minds fractured by life. It's a long way off, but to get there takes no time and admission is free if you will purge yourself of desire and present yourself with your need only and the simple offering of your faith, green as a leaf. Revelation 21 gives us a great vision of the future where every tear shall be wiped away and death shall be no more and God will dwell with humans. A vision of God's kingdom, a different vision of life, that life does not have to be like it is in our own experience. It's an offer and a vision of life in its fullness. And that's what Jesus invites the first disciples to participate in, in our second reading this morning. He invites them to come and follow him on the great adventure of meeting God's future kingdom coming in. And this calling, I think, is mostly fulfilled out in the world. There was a, a Church of England report please don't yawn, a Church of England report a couple of years ago called Setting God's People Free, which honestly was quite exciting because the point of it was that what it was saying is what we need to be doing is literally setting God's people free to participate in God's kingdom throughout the world, not locking up our discipleship just inside the church, but seeing ways in which Christian mission and ministry can transform and change the world around us. It invites us to engage with what God is doing in the world. And one little hobby horse of mine is I find from time to time people will talk about building God's kingdom. And I think that's the wrong word. Because when I read through the Gospels, what I see is Jesus talking about God's kingdom growing. We're not, I think, encouraged to build, but to be part of God's growing his kingdom. Can you see the difference? If we build it, then we build it. If we watch it grow we recognize that it's God who's actually the one who's behind it. And I think that's really important. Where is God at work? Three images have struck me in recent years in terms of what we see God inviting us to do with his kingdom. Those three are fishers, farmers, and midwives. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus invites those disciples who are already fishermen to come and join him in this kingdom adventure. Follow me and I will make you fish for people, he says. We also hear a call to be farmers or gardeners. Come and be laborers in the harvest field, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9. And there's another image of midwives, which you won't so much find in the Gospels, but Paul uses it in Romans chapter 8, picking up something that Isaiah says, Isaiah 42. And the thing that unites those three images of fishers, farmers, and midwives is that when you think about it, their role is to bring something to be rather than to do it necessarily themselves. If you're fishing, what you do is you put your line out and you wait for the fish to come, but you look for the right moment to do that. Many years ago when I was on holiday in, uh, in Cornwall, 
I was invited out to go fishing with one of the old fishermen from the village there. And he said, well, you'll have to get up really early in the morning because the mackerel come up just at the point where the sun hits the water. I'd got two small boys at the time, so uh, they were up, and I sort of struggled along behind them. And off we went, and he was absolutely right. As the sun came up, he was in exactly the right position, this fisherman, to throw out the line and for the mackerel to come up and pick up that line at the time. There was also, rather wonderfully, a seal who was bobbing along behind us, who was popping about, actually having his breakfast by picking the fish off the lines as we went, which was quite fun to watch, though the fisherman wasn't so keen on the idea as we were. But you can see the point. He had to be there the right time and the right place to make the catch. With farming or gardening, it's a bit the same. I'm not much of a gardener, but uh, I am just about trusted to look after the raspberry bushes that we've got, which are just coming to fruit now in our garden. And again, you have to watch them for the right time. If you pick too early, then the things are like bullets, and they don't taste very nice at all, do they? If you pick them too late, then either the birds have already eaten half of them, or the rain's got them, and they're all mushy and going mouldy. You have to look for the right time. When's the right moment to catch that raspberry? to find the right moment. And midwives, as you can gather, are quite important in our family at the moment. But midwives don't give birth to the baby themselves, do they? They look for the right moment to encourage that baby and the mother to come to birth for that to happen. And those seem to me to be three ways in which uh, God uses those images to help us to see that our role in terms of this second zone of vocation, God's kingdom, is to find ways of bringing God's kingdom to birth. To be there, to pick the moment, to see when the crucial word or action might make a difference. What's your vocation in that area? What are the things that are happening around you, where you live or work, that you might encourage into fruition that you might help God's creative coming of his kingdom there for me in our own village one of the ways of doing that is it's sometimes been a rather fractious village about 300 people uh, and people come and they go all the time how do we have a good sense of community there there are some signs of that little things in exciting stuff like the village hall committee and things like that but actually, I think it's part of doing God's kingdom work, of being involved with the growing of his kingdom, to get involved in that stuff, to see ways in which people can learn to live together in harmony and find ways of growing that community there. And you will know what the equivalent is for you. So the third zone of our vocation, vocation, vocation is the church. And the church, I think, is the most visible part of the kingdom. It's there to be a sign of the kingdom. If you can see creation being what lies behind and kingdom being what lies before, the bit in the middle, the meat in the sandwich, if you like, is the church, isn't it? It's where God's creation and God's kingdom meet. In this sense, the church is called to serve and lead humanity, to manifest what, it, what God's kingdom, that vision of the future, might look like. Quite an awesome responsibility. We occupy a border zone between heaven and earth, between God's fallen creation and God's coming kingdom. When we worship, 
what we're worshipping, the way in which we're worshipping is linking with the worship of heaven. It's the point particularly where we cross that border and the two realms are united. But if it is a border zone, then you need people who are there um, to help people across that border. Are we border guards or are we ambassadors? There's a difference between the two, isn't there? Are we policing it to keep people out or are we ambassadors encouraging people to come in? That might be the calling for us as well. And some of us are called to be a focus for the church's service and leadership of humanity. Deacons and priests set aside for that work. Next week, Ruth will be set apart as a deacon. The Bible is clear that in God's call to the church, being chosen, set apart, holy and precious in God's sight, is never done just for the benefit of the people he has called. It's for the benefit of others. So the called and chosen one becomes a sign, a public sign, of God's love for the world. What does that mean? Well, if you think about it, Sundays are not more special or closer to God than all the other days, but because Sunday is the day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead, when, from the very beginning of the church, Christians have worshipped God and celebrated Jesus' triumph over darkness, evil, and death. We treat it still as special. It reminds Christians that all time is a gift from God. Bread and wine are not more special or closer to God than other food and drink. But again, from the beginning of the church, Christians have used them at Jesus' command to remember his death for us on the cross. Ordinary bread and wine become special food and a reminder that all we have comes from God. Special days, special food, these point not to themselves but to the one who made them special. And so it is with Ruth, about to be ordained deacon, committed to the visible service of Jesus Christ. She's special because in her we see, however imperfectly, God calling to each of us here today. Not to become deacons ourselves, though he might be doing that to some, but to recognize that each of us here is called and chosen, loved by God, whether we have heard or recognized that call before or not. God seeks to love you and to call you. Those who are ordained, called and set apart by God remind us that each of us is loved by the God who in Jesus Christ died for us on the cross and rose for us to offer us new life and hope. Will you join them in becoming a sign of God's love to the world in creation and kingdom, part of the church, the holy people who bring light to the world and transform it? So what does God call you to be where you are? The commitment not so much to do, but to be, to follow what God is drawing you into. There's a, a little phrase that I picked up from a colleague in another diocese a few years ago, which really focuses that, I think, for me. He said, celebrities are the heroes of their own stories. Saints have a walk-on part in God's. Celebrities are the heroes of their own stories. Saints have a walk-on part in God's. When we talk about vocation and calling, it's easy for that to end up just being focused on us when it actually needs to be focused on God, doesn't it? Not so much, what am I called to do, Lord, but who do you want me to be in following you? So what is God's call to you this morning? Think of it in terms of those three zones I've been speaking about. In creation, you're called to be human. What is there 
that you perhaps should make more time for in order to be more human. In terms of God's kingdom, what is God doing outside the church, in the community where you live or where you work? How can you join in with that? And the third zone in the church, a call to service. What can you be called to be in the church that might change the way in which you serve God and make more visible his life in the world? In a moment, we're going to go to another slide, I hope, which is a prayer. A prayer that uh, was written by John Wesley back in the 18th century. It's called the Methodist Covenant Prayer. And it's a prayer of commitment, not so much about doing, but about being available for God's service. And I'll encourage you, perhaps in a moment or two, to join in saying it with me. But as I do so, uh, I'm drawn back to that first sense of call that I had all those years ago, nearly 40 years ago now. And it really came in a meeting that we had, uh, the university I was at, we'd had a a uh, whole week of mission led by Billy Graham. And at the end of the week, we had this meeting where he invited all those who were Christians to come together and to hear him talk about a life of Christian service. So a whole load of us turned up, absolutely packed the place we were in. And at the end of what he was talking about, he said to us, and so if you would like to commit yourself to a life of Christian service, I'd like you to stand up so that you can pray a prayer with me. And almost the entire room stood up. And then the thing that really struck me was, he said, now, some of you might have stood up because the person next to you stood up. And this is a serious thing. So I want you all to sit down again, which we did. And he said, now, only if you're certain that this is how you want to respond to God's call should you stand up. And this time, I think only about two-thirds of us, it was still quite an impressive number, but only about two-thirds of us did. So when I encourage you to join with me in saying this prayer, don't feel that you have to. It might not be the right time for you yet. But it is a prayer about seeking not so much what can I do, Lord, but what can I be? How can I be one who follows you in your calling in the three different zones of creation kingdom and church. So I'm going to try and switch microphones. This is a white one and it works. So if you would like to, please stand and join me as we say this prayer. So together we pray. I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. Amen.